Hello and welcome to a special Beaver podcast. Today we're going to be talking about West Nile virus um, and what every ambulatory vet needs to know about it. We're really lucky to have with us Richard Newton, formerly of the Animal Health Trust, now getting comfortably with the feet underneath the desk at Cambridge University and uh, running the new equine disease surveillance unit out of, out of Cambridge. And Lucy Grieve, uh, ex-Beaver president, just stood down as Beaver president and ambulatory practitioner for Rossdale and Partners working across the east of England. We're really lucky to have um, both of you guys here and also really lucky to have the support of the British Horse Foundation in, in enabling us to put together this podcast. I'm not going to waffle on. I'm going to pass on to Lucy, who can ask from a proper practitioner perspective everything about West Nile fever. Thank you, David. Thanks, Richard, for coming. So, um, to be a very true to myself, uh, ambulatory vet, I've often heard about West Nile virus, but haven't actually come across it yet, thank God. Um, could you just go through what West Nile virus is and how it's spread, please? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, David, and thanks, Lucy. Great to be with you. Um, yeah, West Nile uh, virus is uh, one of quite a number of viruses that are within the uh, family of Flaviviridae, and a genus under that uh, are the flaviviruses. There's about 50 odd of them. Some of them you may have heard of are dengue fever virus, yellow fever virus, uh, St. Louis encephalitis virus, um, one in Australia called Cungin virus. Um, and these are um, arthropod-borne viruses, arboviruses, which means they're spread by insects. And West Nile is actually spread by mosquitoes. And its life cycle ordinarily will circulate between birds. So mosquitoes that bite birds and then go on bite other birds and they'll spread the virus, they'll amplify it and, and spread it on. And it's when the, uh, the these mosquitoes also go and bite horses, that's when they will transmit it to the poor unsuspecting horse. And what disease does it cause in horses? You know, how would someone like myself spot West Nile virus, as it were, in a horse that's infected? Yeah, the important thing I think from the outset I would say is not all horses that are infected are going to show clinical signs. So probably only around 10% will, but when they do have signs, they can be quite dramatic. See quite a broad range of neurological signs. It can be central, so you can get these sort of head pressing and, and depressed horses. Uh, they can go off their legs, they can be wobbly on their legs. So you see a broad range of, of, of signs, but only a relatively small portion uh, would see that. And where we've seen this in some parts of the world, such as when it got into America, it was really the numbers of new cases that were occurring uh, that, that, that made it stand out. So hopefully vets might think that there was something a little bit unusual in what they were seeing. It wasn't typical of other viruses. We don't have many viruses that cause neurological disease, thankfully, in the UK. So hopefully they'd be alert to something a little bit unusual, and that would make them want to investigate um, a little bit further. And presumably, because it's vector-borne, an infected horse does pose a risk to other horses and indeed humans as well. So, you know, if you were to spot it, then it's pretty it's pretty important to spot it quickly, I imagine. Well, yeah, that's uh, an interesting point. It isn't actually true that the horse is infectious with this virus to other, to other animals. Um, 
the 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 human uh, is an example the same uh, they can get it. it is a zoonotic disease um, and the horse as well but they don't have enough virus they don't amplify enough virus up to become sufficiently viremic that if uh, an insect then bites them that wasn't infected that it would become infected and transmitted on uh, the term that we use, which is a bit unfortunate, is called a dead end host, which basically means when the virus goes in, it may well cause problems, but it doesn't come back out again and, and, and cause a problem, which we do see with other vector borne diseases, most notably African horse sickness. So from that point of view, the horse actually is reasonably safe, but you don't want horses going down with these dramatic signs, uh, some of which might require animals to be to be euthanized. So there, there would be a welfare impact, but horses wouldn't act as a source of virus for, for other animals, which is important when we're thinking about the control and the importance of horses in the epidemiology and transmission of this virus. And how, um, how can sort of us UK vets um, go about determining if West Nile virus is causing disease in this country? How can we sort of go about knowing that, if you like? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. And I think it's important to stress that at, at the moment we don't believe that West Nile is is in the UK and therefore it would be considered an exotic disease and it is on the list of diseases for which DEFRA and APHA would take an interest because it's notifiable um, and there are actually mechanisms that uh, do allow that to be investigated without triggering uh, major um, impacts on, on the horse owner. We did have a fear that that would be the case and it would limit uh, the investigation where there might be a suspicion of, of disease. So there is a system that DEFRA have put in place where it can be ruled out. So it's a test to exclude system. Um, and that's where the differential diagnosis being West Nile is very low down. There are other things ahead of it. And vets can opt to, to do that. Um, there is a specific form that they can use to submit samples, but before they do any of that, they do need to speak to um, a veterinary officer of, of APHA. They'll discuss the case with them. Hopefully they will agree that the likelihood of it being West Nile is, is low on the list. And then they will be given uh, basically a, a, a code that will allow them to submit the sample to APHA Weybridge and they will do a test. And then hopefully um, it, it will be excluded. Um, but where there is, suspicion that it could actually be on clinical grounds west nile perhaps some other factors than perhaps there's been recent travel from an affected country then they have to again submit it to aph weybridge but it's now not a test to exclude it's a suspicion so it become a case report and interestingly reading through the um uh, the literature on this there is actually now the option that blood can be taken and submitted through a similar system in order to determine the seroprevalence of um, of this, this this condition, so things have definitely moved on. When we a few years ago we we were having great difficulty in being able to do any of that. Richard, a, a question. Can I do a, just a question for both of you, really? So, if you're a if you're a practitioner, you get called out to a sort of course showing neuroscience, fairly vague. At what point do you make the decision that now you're going to call an APHA vet and, and discuss it with them because there is a suspicion? Because I suspect most of us are, are slightly wary of doing that because we might feel we're going to look like an idiot. 
Yeah, um, I mean, sometimes these have uh, cases have already been perhaps not directly referred on, but perhaps a new, an, an expert in neurology has been consulted and they just want to be as thorough as possible. And whilst they may think that the likelihood, given all the other factors, the absence of the infection in, in the country at the moment, that, that's a big, that would be a big game changer. Um, perhaps they're in a part of the country that they don't think the vectors are, are that active uh, and that sort of thing. So the index of suspicion is quite low, but they want to be thorough, make sure that they have ruled it out. Um, and I don't think there's any stigma attached to requesting a test that then comes back negative when you're doing it as a sort of panel of completeness, if you like. Um, there's this old adage of, uh, you know, there are two, two kinds of... Uh, Vets, the you know the vet that doesn't diagnose the exotic disease, and the one the one that 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 does, and I think we'd all want to be the the latter. So it's um, try and be as complete as possible. Use it as a rule out, um, and you know get as full a picture as you can for your diagnostic um, workup. I guess. And that's a good point. I mean, in in these days of sort of quite a lot of international travel of horses, which countries are we talking about that are you know got West Nile virus at this time and therefore would perhaps automatically trigger you to think about it if the horse had come back from competing somewhere abroad and and what surveillance have they got going on in those countries as well yeah that's a very very good point Lucy and 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 the important thing is that is changing it is changing almost year on year um before 1999 this disease was not known in America in in in, in the, the whole continent of 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 the Americas it suddenly appeared in, in, in the New York area and within only a few years, it had basically spread from coast to coast, from the Atlantic coast along, along to the Pacific coast. It found it very easy to, to, to spread there. So any horses going into the Americas, in theory, could, could be at risk depending on the, 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 the time of year. It's actually closer to home as well. It's been known in Europe for you know, several decades now. It made a resurgence in Italy, again in the late 1990s, and it's now considered endemic there. It circulates year on year, actually in northern Italy, believe it or not, but we've seen it in Spain, Portugal, southern France, eastern Europe, but most notably since 2018, it's actually moved north now, and it's been diagnosed in horses, causing problems in Germany, and last year they had it not causing problem in horses but in humans and in in birds in in the netherlands so all that evidence would suggest it's creeping a bit closer we're now still actually in the period when west nile will be being diagnosed in those countries so in theory any animals traveling to mainland europe into those countries where they've had it before could could be at risk depending on the area they're going into, depending on the vector densities, the mosquitoes and the environment that, that they're going into. So, and that information is available through ourselves, through our International Collating Centre initiative. Um, and there's also something called the European Centres for um, Disease Prevention and Control. And they monitor human as well as horse and, and bird cases of West Nile. And you get very up-to-date reports from them and you know that they're, they're reporting as we have they've seen it in spain uh france germany and hungary i think so far this year wow so are they are testing dead birds as well then as a sort of surveillance thing as well in these places presumably 
Yes, I mean, it's interesting when you speak to the people in the Netherlands, which are probably the most recent country in which it is, they're, they're basically thinking about um, monitoring humans, monitoring uh, animals such as horses, uh, because we're, us and the horses, we're, we're sentinels for the infection, but also monitoring um, birds. Um, it can cause bird die-offs. Uh, monitoring um, chicken flocks, for example, could they be exposed? Uh, and also perhaps looking at mosquitoes, uh, where, where they're trapped and collected and, and, and looking there. So really, you, you almost this one health approach at looking at West Nile across multiple species, getting the earliest indication that it's there, and then being able to hopefully advise and prevent. So do you think that the risk of West Nile in this country is increasing? And if so, why why is that, I suppose, to be sort of blunt about it? Why is it going up at this time? Is it beyond just the, the spread that's coming from the other countries or is there other environmental changes going on that are, are, are accelerating, I guess, the risk for us to get it in this country? Yeah, I think I, th- I think we can't ignore the, the global warming climate, climate change issue. It's, you know, it's in the news all the time. Um, and we are, if you look look globally, seeing these changes in distribution of the diseases and actually the vectors that can that can um, transmit these infections as well. It's it, it's fairly subtle year on year, but it's clearly happening. Um, and as as I've just mentioned, it, it's getting closer to our shores. Um, classically, this infection will actually move with migratory birds, and we clearly have those. People may not think that we're a country that has mosquitoes, but we very, very much do. I walk to the bottom of my garden at the right time of year, I get bitten. So I know all about that. Um, and we've, the Public Health England scientists there are monitoring some key sites in, in the UK, the North Kent marshes, quite close to us at um, uh, the um, at Wickham Fen, for example, you know, there are, there are the right habitats there for, for this sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, global warming, changing distribution. Although what's interesting is we haven't seen that rapid transfer across the continent that was seen in the Americas. We, we mm-hmm. haven't seen that. We've known about this infection in the sort of Mediterranean basin for many, many decades, and it's not moved out of there. So it's not quick, but we need to keep an eye on it. So yeah. do you think, Richard, it's, there's an inevitability that it will, it will be here, the vectors will be here, the disease will be here at some point? And, and the, if yes, it's an inevitability, and I know you're far more scientific than that, but are you saying in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? He's putting me on the spot. Um, yep. I guess the safest thing is to say yes, <laughs> to be a little bit candid about the time frame, because we, we really woke up to this infection um, actually in about 2003 when it really took off into the States. It got into those southern states. And because they've got longer, they've got warmer climate, longer periods for the vectors to survive almost almost year round. Um, and it really, really took off at that point, and, and, and the, the world woke up to this change in distribution for West Nile virus. And since then, we've been saying, well, we've got migratory birds that could be carrying it, we've got the vectors, we've got the uh, amplifying hosts, which are the birds, and we've got ourselves and horses that can suffer from it. And yet we haven't, we haven't seen it. So that's, um, you know, getting towards two decades of concern. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to 
you know, say never. Um, I'd be surprised if it wasn't here in the next decade. But, you know, ask me if I'm still in post in 10 years and we haven't had it. I think we'll all be, we'll all be rather pleased. It does seem like a bit of a ticking time bomb, doesn't it, to be honest? I mean, like you say, we've sort of got away lightly so far, but it can't carry on, can it? Not, not forever. What, what, when it does arrive, which it will do by the sounds of it, what, what can we do for prevention? What can us involved in horses in terms of, you know, owners, vets, people in the industry, what, what prevention is there available to us? Well, I think that's actually a really good news story for the for the horse, certainly compared to, to humans, in that the the incursion into the Americas and the extent, the impact that it had um, really triggered uh, research and development of what at the time were fairly crude vaccines, but they were actually very effective. So we actually have the legacy of that in, in Europe at the moment. And there are actually three licensed vaccines uh, that the European um, uh, licensing authorities, and that includes VMD, have have license. So you, 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 you know, they they are available, technically or in 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 theory at least. And you know, I think we would have to turn to those becoming a recommended vaccine fairly quickly, particularly in areas where this was emerging. I don't think it'd be one of these where we'd wake up and suddenly the whole country had West Nile virus cases, I think it would probably we'd start to see it in um, the, the, the areas of such as Southeast England, maybe East Anglia first, and then it would probably spread from there. So I think we, uh, you know, you might be on the firing line yourself fairly, fairly soon with it. Um, and then, yeah, uh, and, and I think horses would suddenly have to start thinking about uh, arboviruses vector-borne diseases a lot more than they've ever done before because we've just we've just not had them. Mm-hmm. So thinking about vector-protecting um, horses, uh, premises, stabling, thinking about treating um, places where mosquitoes at certain times of the year can can reproduce and um, and, and, and increasing their their numbers. You know, I think that would be fairly foreign for most horse owners at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, there'd be several things we could do. And have preventative measures worked reasonably well in other countries where it's sprung up? Yeah, I think I think we also, you know, I keep referring to the United States. They, they've, you know, they've had it pretty dramatically there. And, and those vaccines have been highly effective. I mean, if we look now at surveillance reports on the occurrence of that disease in the Americas invariably it's saying either not vaccinated or lapsed vaccinated or under vaccinated as they call it and and that's a real testament to if you get these vaccines in and they're fairly traditional it'll be two doses about four weeks apart and then giving them annual boosters ahead of the high risk period then you're going to be pretty unlucky if your horse then then goes down with with West Nile virus no vaccine is 100 percent as we know but you are, you know, you're, you're, you're tipping it, the balance, well in favour. Um, and we don't have that for humans at the moment. So the horse is pretty well served. And it's just, when do we, when do we put the flag up, I guess? When do we start? So there's no vaccine for humans for West Nile, no? Is there anything in the pipeline? Or... Um, I'm not aware that there is. Uh, I think a little disease like called COVID came along and probably <laughs> took the... Took the uh, 
took all the resource and, and, and yeah. pressure. Um, what's interesting actually is if in, in, in humans where it has caused the biggest effect and it can be can be fatal, often that's been in, in older people in countries like Greece, they've had it fairly fairly bad. So um, they're just they're, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been a vaccination program for it, but perhaps it's just not um, seen as as, as as big a public health risk as as other things. Um, and it seems to vary year on year, which is uh, yeah, which is interesting. So, which horses in the UK would need to be considered for vaccination? Presumably, it would start in the regions where it where it's first found. You know, those sort of areas would presumably be candidates to start vaccinating in those areas. And would it be all horses? Would it be different sort of horses that are more at risk? How would you sort of phase in vaccination if you like when we first have it hit the country yeah i mean even even before that lucy i think i'd be thinking about you know if you're traveling horses to high risk areas i might be thinking about that um yeah. and certainly you know some some years ago horses traveling to texas for things like the um the breeders cup and things like that although that's a tight timeline to get vaccines in but certainly because the geographical distribution in europe is changing I think horse owners traveling over there ought to be thinking about it even now. Okay. In terms of animals here, um, yeah, I, I think it will depend where, where the incursion happens. That will probably dictate where, where it is. This disease, like so many others, is not going to discriminate between value and mm. size and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So it's going to be, I think, a matter of vets working with owners, assessing risks, um, you know, are they in a, an area where there could be the vectors, if, you know, if they're already known and, um, yeah, and what are the steps can, can they take? Um, I think vaccination in the long term is a, is a good investment, probably, if this, this was to emerge here. I think that's how it's been seen in the States. And it's yeah. now almost a core vaccine. Um, it will occur year on year. And why put your horse at risk when you can prevent it? And are those are those vaccines readily available in the UK, Richard? Ah, well, um, not at the moment. Uh, each of those companies will hold a certain amount of stock, but because they haven't currently got a market for it, why would they want to maintain more? All all vaccines have a shelf life, yeah. so I think yeah, that that initial response would be would be quite tricky because there will be a lead in time. We've already spoken to all of the manufacturers actually and they're, they're all kind of in the same boat it's a matter of knowing we would work with them very closely and i'm sure there'd be a clamor for them to move stocks from from elsewhere and, and up production but i think you know it might be that that first season if it was to appear fairly well into it we might find that the, there isn't really any vaccine to give give horses and we'd have to be thinking about the next season which would give us time to, you know, get those primary courses going once the vaccine became available. And the the products we've got licensed. I mean, what, how when do you start vaccinating young horses? You know, from what age can you vaccinate them? And you said it's two primary doses, is it? And then annual boosters, presumably. So it's yeah, very they're much all like the, flu. Yeah, no, very much so. They're they're um, the the there are three products. One is uh, based on the canary pox, um, so the ProTech technology. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, and then the other two are much more traditional inactivated viruses. One of those viruses is what we call a chimeric virus. So it's a mixture of yellow fever with some West Nile virus bits in it, but it's killed and it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very, um, between them, they recommend five to six months of age, not to vaccinate them before that. Um, and then you're looking at a either a three to five week interval or a four to six week interval. So it's it's around four uh, around four weeks. Very traditional. You put the two doses in, and then you would want to booster vaccinate. You can do that annually, but obviously do that ahead of the season, um, which which would be probably you know into the into the summertime before you're doing it because this infection very often will appear late summer and then in into the autumn and this is a bit of a sort of very practically orientated uh question but given that we've now got few vaccines to be giving potentially to horses so flu tetanus herpes for some of them and and now maybe west nile as well you presumably can't be giving them all on the same day at one visit because that would be against against guidance i presume but how much in between these vaccines should you be leaving if you were or if you had a client that wanted to protect their horse maximally for all these things because they were traveling internationally or whatever um, how would you go about giving those through that year period if you like yeah that that that's a good question i think it would all have to be quite carefully planned um horse owners don't always like giving the vaccines but they realize that they have to uh, this one would very much be for the benefit of of each individual animal receiving it. So hopefully that would mean that you know people are making that choice and going for it. Um, again, I come back to in the states they have m- many more combined vaccines that, that, than we do. We have flu and tetanus. We don't even have flu, herpes, and tetanus, um, whereas they they will in the states and they will have um combination vaccines for a number of viruses that cause neurological disease so very often it's a lot easier for them to go in one visit give one vaccine it'll cover a number of of infections but um again you you know vets would only want to be giving this to healthy horses um Mm. in order to obviously get the optimal response um Again, I don't think the manufacturers would be supporting the idea of giving these simultaneously, perhaps in different parts of the body. I think that that, that could lead to issues yeah. with adverse reactions. Yeah. So I, I would think at least a week, as long as the horse has been been well after the last one. But I say it again, I think it's all down to the timing mm. um, and planning the, um, the, the administration ahead of when you want the protection. And maybe yeah. with flu and herpes and um, West Nile, they are slightly different, so they can be staggered. Yeah. So West Nile, presumably, you want to be giving, as you said at the beginning of the mosquito season, I guess. So, yes. Know, yeah. As the, yeah. As the months are warming up, yeah. Sort of springtime that's, or before that, that even. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's all my practical questions. David, have you got any, <laughs> any uh, questions from you? Well, I suppose that I was going to ask you a question, actually, Lucy. So what are your what are your take homes from that? What are the two or three sort of important messages that you've scribbled down on your your notepad there? I think the the most interesting one for me was considering the international travellers now, as opposed to waiting for this to sort of kick off in the UK, as it were. 
um, you know, I have read for quite a while now that there's West Nile in parts of Europe, for instance, but it hadn't quite occurred to me that we should be warning clients who are taking their horses to those areas that they perhaps should be getting vaccinated already at this point. Um, but certainly, yes, to be prepared for its arrival here, you know, to affect the average Joe horse owner, then the sort of idea of mosquito population control is quite a big one, actually, isn't it? And, you know, it's not not dissimilar to people that have horses with sweet itch, is it? You know, and how you manage those kind of cases. So we probably do need to plan ahead a bit and think about that. And then, as as you've mentioned, start to think about this becoming part of normal routine horse care um, and how you're going to deliver that through the year having sort of targeted points in the horse's annual calendar, I suppose, when you're going to take care of these elements, you know, just it's one more thing we need to think about, but it's important, clearly. Absolutely. I mean, you, you spent some time in the States. Um, mm. Have you seen, have you seen any cases? Actually, yeah. And I remember just as Richard was pointing out when it really started to take hold, I was over in, um, in Davis, California and, thankfully didn't see any actual cases but every neuro case that came into davis was was tested and it was being looked for at that point quite heavily so you know i i being a new student out there thought that was kind of the norm without realizing that was quite an sort of big big moment really over those years when it was becoming a, a big issue that they were all worried about so you know didn't see a case but certainly it was very much thought about back then even in sort of the mid 2000s so and you think you, California was actually one of the final places to get it, um, and they'd obviously had a lot of experience seeing it coming in their their direction. Mm. Um, but I remember speaking to some clinicians and actually seeing their their, their videos there in in some of these university hospitals, and the, you know they didn't have one or two cases; they had quite a lot filling their filling their wards. And in the states, uh, a really important differential is rabies. Yes. Um, so it, you know, it was a different picture over there. I'm not saying it would be the same here, but you know, we we need to look at those uh, those experiences and, and learn as much as we can from them. Um, and I think the just coming back to the the the, the previous point about owners and travelling horses, um, I, I think understanding their their destination where they're going to is probably important, but. Um, we, we, we have actually diagnosed it in a horse in the UK, which, which people may not know about, but although it almost certainly wasn't acquired here, and it was a horse that had actually travelled from, from Cyprus, and part of that was overland through Europe. So it was never known where that animal acquired it, but it developed signs after it arrived, and it was sort of provisionally diagnosed. It had a positive um, blood test for antibody to it. It wasn't vaccinated, etc. So it was a presumptive diagnosis. Um, and it wasn't known where where it acquired it, or had it, you know was it was it acquired in in, in transit? And um, so I think um, yeah, understanding what the state of the disease is, where people are travelling their horses is, is quite important. And it would be nice to have a finer detailing on on the you know where the mosquitoes are, where the virus is, what disease is being seen in that locality at, at that time, and people have just got to be as vigilant as possible and if there is any risk and they don't want to take risk then yeah. go down the vaccination route if they can plan it yeah and it will stand them in good stead going forward as well if it was to appear they've already got some some primed animals um, yeah. 
Okay. I think in the in in the new market areas, some of those stud farms are probably turning their attention to some of their more valuable stock, thinking about what if. Um, to me, it would seem a very good uh, insurance policy to think about protecting animals now. It may not happen for 10 plus years, but there we are. Brilliant. Yeah, Richard, I, th I think I've got a, a much clearer, more pragmatic understanding of it, of it all now. It's, it seems like it, the clever money says that it's inevitably going to get here at some stage. How long that is, who knows, but but we shouldn't be surprised and therefore we should we shouldn't be we shouldn't be pushing it to the back of the differential diagnosis we should probably be safer rather than sorry if there are some indicators in addition to the neurological signs that there there is a risk there um, either through what we're hearing in the rest of the country or where that horse has moved from um, but that if we if we're on top of it it needn't be a disaster. We we can we can manage and control it with a combination of vaccination and husbandry measures, um, but we shouldn't be blind to the fact that it's that it's heading over here. Would that be a that be a reasonable assumption? Yeah, I think so, David. I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it just actually made me think about one element that I think we ought to be doing better at, um, and that's this uh, something called syndromic surveillance, which whilst we might not know what is causing disease, we ought to have a better handle on when animals, you know, are presenting with neurological signs. And, you know, vets like Lucy out in the field every day, um, they're the eyes and ears of all of our surveillance. And what we don't have at the moment is a good way of collating that information and monitoring it and then, then responding to it. Um, it's been done very well, actually, in, by some groups in small animal medicine now. Um, there is an initiative based at Liverpool University, and I'm very hopeful that that might start to fill that void. But, you know, having vets um, sign up to those, um, have their, you know, their, the information that they collect on a daily basis through their practice management systems um, monitored, you know, is a really sophisticated and, and nice way of monitoring new, newly occurring disease. Getting um, data. Perhaps with West Nile, it might be so dramatic that we that we won't miss it. But sometimes some subtle early things can get missed. And just quickly, which so just for someone like me, where which website or resource would you use to update yourself about West Nile virus? Just on a quick, you know smartphone check at the side of the road where would you head to as your first protocol um well i am going to plug our own international collating center it's not a it's not on as an app at the moment but you can sign up for email notifications um and they will drop in in in, in there um, you probably have to sift through a lot of other stuff but if there is west nile occurring in france germany you know wherever it will be there um, and then the other one is the um, is this European Centre for um, Disease Prevention and Control, um, which again you you probably have to be active and, and tap into that um, on a say a weekly basis. So you do need a little bit of discipline. But the beauty of the ICC is that we do that for you, um, yeah. and then we'll send the alerts, and you can either open them or ignore them. It's up it's up to you. That's good. That's really helpful. So, and Richard, that's so that's sort of great for the surveillance. What's going on at the moment? Is there any are there any good resources if if anyone wants to find out a little bit more about the 
clinical disease that you could point people in the direction of? Um, yeah, I think Dr. Google probably. <laughs> <laughs> is it in the codes yet? <laughs> I'm bare yeah, asking. Great, great question there from Lucy. Is, is, is it in the codes? Yeah, it's yeah. been in the codes, um, I think, two years now. Yeah. It's quite, it's a guideline. Um, and again, there'll be there'll be re, re, resources there. There's a whole wealth of resources sitting on the on on the web, David, with, and you can yeah. access videos and, and and what have you. So you'll get a graphic idea of what this this disease can present like. Um, but Brilliant. yeah, it, it it got on the codes radar. Um, I think we first put it in the codes uh, in 2020. So it's uh, it's there now and. Um, yeah, we just need to be alert, and um, we we will be flagging it with you guys as as soon as it's detected. You, you will hear about it. Your face will appear in the news. <laughs> <laughs> Great, uh, Lucy, Richard, thank you very much. Um, Lucy, thanks for asking from the from a real world perspective and drilling into Richard's expert mind. Richard, thank you for access to your expert mind on that. Um, yeah. And once again, thanks to the British Horse Foundation for enabling this, this podcast to take place. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Um, I've certainly lo- learned a lot in the last half an hour. Yeah. And see Thank you again you. soon. Cheers, Richard. Thank you. Nice Thank to you both. Cheers. Cheers, Lucy. Bye. Bye-bye.